0: The following broadcast is for information on purposes only and should not be construed as solicitation. You're listening to Finance in 3X, Episode 1, The Yield Curve. With former careers as options trading floor specialist and hedge fund manager, David's 30 years of investment experience chops through the confusion, dashes past the disinformation, and pummels the pundits. Amidst the mediocrity, you found a rare combination of education— experience, and skepticism. Welcome home. Hello and welcome to Finance in 3X. I am your host, David Roscoff, coming to you from somewhere in America's great Northwest to talk about money in all of its permutations of finance, economics, investments, because it's part of our daily lives and either we gain some mastery over it or... We're eventually going to pay for that ignorance. You know, in today's world, with everything getting ever more complicated, you could use a little help in distilling things down to more digestible bites. Because the underlying concepts or products are are one thing. And then the disinformation intended to confuse and provoke emotion is entirely something else. Because markets are not a stimulus-response system, say, like physics. If they were, then the bean counters of the world would own the universe. And they don't. Markets are not a chess-like exercise between erudite academicians. No, they're a brawl. Simply disguise the civilization. And the rules? Well, as Jack Sparrow said, and I quote, It's all about what a man can do and what a man can't do. So after 30 years in finance and investments, I've learned that the first two acts, education and experience, are just not enough. Act three is skepticism. And for me, it's born of innumerable hard knocks. Act one. So without further ado, to me, the big ticket headliner is... uh, the yield curve right now at least it's been for said many months before this what is it it's a it's a graph right it's a representation basically that's going to show you the appetite for and the cost of credit and it does that by connecting the dots usually traveling from the lower left to the upper right that would be a normal curve or normal line okay the vertical measure interest rates and the horizontal is time time goes from a day through a series of maturities and all the way out to 30 years and we're talking specifically about the u.s treasury debt yield curve here okay so the one day starting point of the yield curve is called the federal funds rate or the overnight interbank lending rate and this is how bank members loan each other money in order to meet federal reserve reserve requirements right they charge each other for the overnight loans one's got a surplus the other a deficit so this rate is controlled exclusively by the federal reserve however everything after that to the right is controlled in the public market right the treasury comes out and says we need to finance the government we're going to be selling so many bonds at this effective rate but once that debt goes into the markets It's going to pay that interest rate, but the price is going to go up and down of the underlying bond or note or bill in order to match the perception of what the interest rate should be at that time. And keep in mind, this is not just a domestic encounter. Most countries own some of our debt. Okay, the treasury market is colossal, right? It's the deepest, most liquid market on earth. And it's because of this reason that it would be almost impossible to manipulate Unless, of course, you had unlimited credit like the Federal Reserve, right? Consider that 80 cents of every dollar basically goes into some kind of a fixed income vehicle. So as an economic indicator, right off the bat, bonds are considered more substantial. I think of it this way, like a wise grandfather puffing on his pipe in the library as the bond market while his 13-year-old grandson steals the keys to the Porsche. That's the equity market. Okay get back to the yield curve. It's considered normal if it slopes up as it moves to the right because the maturities keep increasing. So if if you're the buyer, you want more reward the longer someone gets to control your money. Yeah, I mean, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow, right? Let alone 30 years from tomorrow. You of course have the payments locked in and the, you know, the rates are going to change. You're hoping that they're going to go lower, but they might go higher. So you want a little risk premium, That's why the yields are going to be going up as time increases. All right, so the basic shapes of the yield curve, and there aren't too many, uh, in a normal economy, which is expanding, which is the majority of the time, the cost of long-term corporate borrowing is allowing expansion. That means it's not too high, right? And we're talking on on the far side. Well, the bank's ability to profit is also strong. So, of course, the banks buy short-term money in terms of deposits, and then they package that money and they sell it as a loan on a longer-term basis. And so you can get the impression that when the curve has a nice upward slope to the right, the spread is healthy. I want to keep this simple. So as the curve flattens and it gets less sloped, it could be for several reasons, right? On the left-hand side, the Fed could be raising the federal funds rate as they are right now to temper the economic expansion to put the brakes on a little bit that's exclusively the left side on the right side in every other maturity specifically the longest end the economy could be showing signs of slowing down right so in a slowing economy you you want to buy bonds and bonds are a safe haven and that's where people go when things are going down or staying still so as the bonds are bid up the yields go down Right, and you could see that this is going to lower the right side, and whereas the Fed would be, in, in the case I just stated, raising the left side. Or some combination of those two. But basically, a flattening yield curve shows slowing growth. And, of course, whenever you have slowing growth, you increase the probability of a recession. Right? That's back-to-back negative GDP. So... I'm here because of all the swords rattling and all the sirens blaring about the potential for an inverted yield curve. Let's have a scenario that would uh, describe an inversion. Let's start at the right side of the curve. The long-term bonds would be falling in yield because everyone would be bidding the bonds up, right? There's an inverse relationship, so when things are getting iffy economically, then people are going to want more security. So if they buy the longest term security and the price rises, then proportionally the yield falls. Okay, let's go back to the left side and then say the federal funds rate may still be rising in an effort to curtail inflation. And that, who knows, you know, the Fed doesn't always get it right. Maybe they waited too long to tighten. And in this circumstance, you might well have an inverted curve. You know, a full inversion is when the federal funds rate on the left is higher than the longest-term bond on the right. And it basically is telling you that the credit cycle is broken and that there's no expansion and almost certainly a contraction. It's ugly. So um, with so many maturities across that yield curve and such a tremendous amount of capital that goes into that thing every day the curve turns more like a battleship than a unicycle. So if it starts to get iffy, the sirens increase in volume, which is what we had lately. So presently, the yield curve is a long way away from anything uh, approaching an inversion. And that's because even though the feds are on a tightening basis right now, they're still pretty far away. And that's the far left side. Now, what happened to cause the little mini panic there, the headlines was it wasn't a full inversion. People weren't saying it's going to be a completely inverted yield curve with the federal funds rising higher than long-term bonds. No, but the 10-year note was rising and the 30-year note was falling. So that would have been an inversion toward the middle of the curve. And it it was substantial enough or threatening enough that uh, many big firms said this is when it's going to happen. It's no longer a matter of if. Anyway, last week, bonds fell, and they're falling again today, which is raising the far right side of the yield curve, making it more normal. And then again, even if there is a flattening or an inversion, and that is a fairly accurate representation of what's coming down the pike or what's going on right now, it isn't necessarily timely. What I mean is that a flattening yield curve or even an inverted yield curve Maybe be months or years away. You know, the recession may be years away. I'm basically jumping right into the seamy underbelly of pretty sophisticated finance because so much information like the rattling of the sabers for the yield curve, it may invert, right? But what's the probability? These things are meant to make people crazy, They're meant to make them uh, have a knee-jerk reaction, make emotional decisions. Markets are a mugs game. So there's always a rumor mill. And, and consider that if a big player or players want to move a lot of positions, whether it's buying or selling, they need a counterparty. They need somebody on the other side of that transaction. So when they want to buy something, it has to be a scare, scaring little people out. And when they want to sell something, they've got to spike the punch bowl and make everybody think it's going to go to the moon. You know, and then these headlines that are always painted on market moves our conjecture, usually noise. It's just that the public demands some label be put on everything to help them sleep at night and believe that things are rational. I'm here for just this contingency, right? To help you cut through the noise and hopefully better navigate the rest of your financial life. Act two. Okay, you've got a basic understanding of the yield curve. So let's dig in a little deeper and start looking into one of the players here, which is the Federal Reserve. Federal Reserve came out in 1913. And the reason that they were incepted was to, to tamper, to slow down, to mitigate these boom and bust inflation-deflation cycles that had basically defined America and her economy since we've started. How do these things start, right? Adam Smith, a noted economist, called them animal spirits, right? These are the things that make us believe that good times will last forever. And when the market collapses or the economy collapses, it's the end of civilization. And basically, this is going to happen time and again, given enough credit, without something there to save the public from itself. And so that's the job of the feds, to tamper the economic growth cycles on, and, the, and the collapse cycles, right? More or less clipping the peaks and troughs out and to stabilize economic growth. And I mean, it's worked pretty well. So they're given a dual mandate, right? They maintain full employment and control inflation. And these are the two biggest variables to mitigate this cycle's repetition of boom and bust. Now, they've got a variety of tools to do this, and we are going to, you know, dig into those things later. You know, they're affecting the cost of money and the supply of money, right? It's a cartel. And the most potent weapon has been the the use of uh, short-term interest rates, raising or lowering the federal funds rate, you know, between banks. And this encourages or discourages growth by creating friction or releasing friction, Every six weeks, the Fed meets, right, 13 regional governors convene, convene and they've got the Beige Book, which is uh, peculiar to the Fed, and they look at all the other barometers of economic health in their regions, and then they release their decision and then a statement on how they see the economy for transparency. Now, that's just the federal funds rate. The rest of the yield curve, and that's everything to the right of it, adjusts to that change so that... If there was a surprise move, then there's going to be probably a big adjustment in in longer-term maturities. And the Fed has been doing a very good job of telegraphing its moves, whether they might not be so much. And then consider that things might move anyway. All right, let's go to the back end of the yield curve. We've talked about the front end. We are now still recovering from the biggest deflation, which was a mini-depression since the big one in '29. Right, the crater that was created when the housing bubble popped threatened literally to consume this republic. Just think back, right? Contract law was about to be breached when banks were being chided about consuming bad loans, otherwise known as a cramdown, right? Money market funds broke a buck. And, of course, the market collapsed. The deflation was cataclysmic. And so the Fed, under Bernanke, tried a few bandages over a gaping, gushing artery of deflation. These were called tarp and talf. And then they got serious, right? Ben got serious, and they initiated something called, euphemistically, quantitative easing. It means inflation. And this was in three big phases. This was well telegraphed, and they got into the open market, and they bought both mortgage-backed securities, the things that were letting the most blood, and long-term treasuries was abandoned. So (laughs) if anyone else had done this, of course it's front-running and then cornering the market, but it's all in benevolence' sake. You know, they could do nothing more at the short end. The federal funds rate at zero, what are you going to do? And so quantitative easing was basically a way to inject unlimited inflation. But you have to keep in mind that They didn't really purchase those securities. They created the money that the bonds and mortgage-backed securities were then transferred with. Okay, so this stabilized the Republic and kept debt payments cheap and loan rates low at the same time. So they got trillions in long-term bonds and inventory, and that exerted a tremendous amount of control on the back end of the yield curve. Why is this important? because modern financial bubbles like the tech bubble in the 90s and the real estate aforementioned bubble are created through excessive credits. That, of course, is just added to another sure thing, and you get the animal spirits. Guess what? Quantitative easing is also excessive credit. Okay, let's do a little segue here. Time to time I've got to catch you up on other things so you can get a bigger look at the big picture. This is called a bond segue. All right, if you think that a longer-term bond is just as secure as a shorter-term bond, you've got to think again. And let me give an example. So let's look at a 30-year bond that's paying 3%. Now, this is a treasury bond, so you're going to get that 3%, and at the end of your time, let's say you paid $1,000, you're going to get your $1,000 back. That, that's foregone. So you're getting 30 bucks a month. Well, let's just say that over time, and we'll make it a short time here, for example, the bond rates rise to 6% so that when the Treasury comes to market, they now have to offer these bonds at 6%. What about you with this 3% bond? What What's going to happen to you? Well, it's not going to be pretty because the market is going to adjust the value of your bond so that its yield or the interest rate is in proportion with contemporary rates. So your $1,000 bond is going to lose about half its value. So that the $30 that it kicks out is equivalent to a 6% yield. So it's going to fall to about in half. And last but not least, Act 3. One way to look at market valuation is to see it as a fraction, where the market value is on top, and that's the numerator, and interest rates would be on the bottom of the denominator so that in this equation if you lowered the value of the denominator you would automatically and proportionately increase the value of the numerator right so this is how i see a basic view of market valuation and it has to do with the uh, what alan greenspan did before bernanke took over right it, the, the role of the fed kind of morphed under greenspan because he was known to target equity prices as part of the uh, the purview of the Fed. And every time it seemed that the market got in trouble, Alan Greenspan would come out and cut interest rates. And this became known as something called the Greenspan put, as we'll discuss in later editions. A put is the opportunity to sell something at a fixed price. So it worked. He shored the markets up by lowering rates, and despite it being out of the Fed's dual mandate. So getting back to credit, credit is the mother's milk of expansion. And excessive credit is the necessary ingredient for a financial bubble. So when you consider the Federal Reserve, they are the god of credit, controlling margin credits for stock purchases, leverage, and they control bank credit, right, in our fractional system, which hypothecates money for loans. What I'm getting around to is that neither the tech or the real estate bubble could have been created without all the credit released by the Federal Reserve. So as I see it, the rate cut stimulus through the 90s culminated in the tech bubble, right? It was cumulative. And then there was another flood of credit to repair that collapse and that resulted in the housing bubble. But the housing bubble was colossal and when it popped it really threatened to recreate the big depression and that's when qe was required and i want to give you even another look at this the bubbles progression right so when the tech bubble manifested the the, this was a bunch of new traders out there right internet trading was just coming to fore so consider that they're sailors on shore leave But then the next bubble, the housing bubble, was passed through more sophisticated hands, right? Bankers and mortgage brokers, right? Those two lead to now. I think this is a U.S. Treasury bond bubble, and it was specifically created through all that quantitative easing, and it may not be as stable as everyone thinks. You see, the previous bubbles inflated and became unstable because eventually you couldn't find another buyer for that inflated good. All the fools were gone, and all the money was invested. No one had cash. This bubble is different. It's in the hands of the world's most accomplished bankers, ostensibly, right? There's no more limit to the credit they can exercise. And I think that's why the bond bubble hasn't collapsed already. And then you got to consider that there's QT now. The Fed has announced that they're unraveling the stimulus. Quantitative easing is now reversing with quantitative tightening. They're just letting the air out of the bubble. And you have to consider that on the way up, at several points, the Fed was the majority of the buyer. There was a majority of the bid on these bonds. And so that if we do get a hint of inflation... Who's going to want to buy all those bonds at the interest they're now paying? All right, I'm going to segue here. We know that the Fed purchases for quantitative easing were made with nothing but air, a promise. Know now that the uh, massive QE stimulus was pedestrian. The balance sheet, rather, was pedestrian before all this started at $900 billion, less than a trillion bucks. And after it was exercised, when all the QE was done, we're talking about $4.5 trillion in assets. You know, a trillion here, a trillion there, pretty soon it adds up. But compare this to the United States gross domestic product, right, for comparison. We're at around $20 trillion. That gives you uh, an idea of the magnitude of the inflation that was created. My favorite economist is Milton Friedman, who's known for saying, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Okay, back to the program. Let me bring it home. We now have a Fed that is raising short-term rates, right, appropriately to control the robust growth in the economy. But they're stuck with this massive inventory of long-term bonds that they want to dump. Of course, when you sell bonds, you increase you know, the interest rate, but that puts pressure on the far end of the curve, right, to go up. So you've got to take into account that all the actions of the Fed by buying those long-term treasuries, when you look at the yield curve today, you do that at least until things get more normal and the Fed's not sitting all those bonds. Because deflating this bubble, you know, having a successful QT... Getting the bonds back into the market without creating another problem is not a foregone conclusion. Right? Despite the capability of the hands that are controlling this bubble, a bubble is by its nature unstable. So now, when you look at today's yield curve, you'll know the rest of the story. Thank you for sharing part of your day with us. Tune in next week for another action-packed excursion into finance in 3X. Thanks in advance for your suggestions for future podcasts and your review. Until next time. Ciao.